Welcome to today's session of the Rooted Course, and today our subject is the Holy Spirit. It's session number four, and I hope that you have downloaded the notes or that you've clicked on the link below this video and you've got the, the notes open in another browser tab so that you can refer to the verses that I referred to. So today we're going to be doing an overview of the Holy Spirit and I'm sure that you're going to find this fascinating as we look right throughout the Bible from start to finish at what the Holy Spirit does. So let's start in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1 chapter 1, and we see firstly that the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. So in Genesis 1 verse 1, we read that the earth was formless and void, and there's darkness everywhere. And then we read for the first time, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light. So what we need to notice here is that the Holy Spirit is not an idea that is introduced later on in the scriptures. But right here in Genesis 1 verse 2, there's a reference to the Holy Spirit being present when God is creating and bringing order. Then as we go through the Old Testament, we find that the Holy Spirit equipped people to do practical tasks. We often think of the Holy Spirit as equipping people to do spiritual tasks, uh, to be able to do something spiritual. But actually, one of the early references to the Holy Spirit is the Spirit equipping people to do very practical things like carpentry. And in Exodus chapter 31, there's a description. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've chosen Bezalel, verse 3, and I filled him with the Spirit of God. And now we're going to find out why. With skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. So here we have a man, Bezalel, who gets anointed by the Holy Spirit. The, the, the word is he's, God has filled him with the Spirit, and this results in him having skill and ability of craftsmanship to make artistic designs and, and to do work uh, for the worship of Israel. Then as we go further through the Bible, we get to the period of the judges. And Samson was, of course, one of the judges. And we read that... The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson in power. This is Judges chapter 14. And what did this anointing of the Holy Spirit upon Samson do? Well, it made him super strong and it enabled him to kill a lion. So we don't normally think of the Holy Spirit coming upon people so that they can kill animals or, or build something beautiful out of wood. But actually in the Old Testament, those are some of the earliest references to the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. 
Of course, the Holy Spirit also changed people's lives in the Old Testament. Again, Samson is a, is a great example of this. <clears throat> in Judges 13, we read about how a woman gave birth to a boy and called him Samson, and he grew and the Lord blessed him. And then in verse 25, it says this, And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in a particular place. So interestingly, here, even in the Old Testament, we have the Spirit of the Lord beginning to stir a person. What does that mean, I wonder? But it was life-changing for Samson and resulted in having this incredible physical strength. And then uh, Saul is another person whose life is, is changed by the Holy Spirit. 1 Samuel verse 10, Saul is told, and this is not something that Saul wants. It's something that, that God causes to happen to Saul. Uh, Saul is told by a prophet, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will prophesy. And you will be changed into a different person. And so here in the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit bringing about transformation in a person's life. Changing them from one kind of person into another kind of person. And that was told to, to Saul, who later became King Saul, the Spirit of the Lord will come on you in power and you will be changed into a different person. David, young David, has a similar experience of being changed by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Samuel 6, you'll know the story how Jesse comes to, sorry, how Samuel comes to the house of Jesse because he knows he must anoint one of David, one of Jesse's sons as king over Israel. But because, because David is the youngest, they didn't even bother to have him in the lineup. So Jesse looks at, so, sorry, so Samuel looks at all of Jesse's sons and discerns in his spirit that the one to be anointed is not there. So he inquires further and they discover, well, there is, a, there is another son. And it's David. They call for him and David comes along. And then we read, Samuel took a horn of oil. That was just an, a useful container. A horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. In other words, Samuel poured out the Holy Spirit. Well, oil out of his horn that was representative a representation of the Holy Spirit, and they poured it upon David, young David. And we read that from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. This is an interesting verse too, because we know David was a spirit-filled person. He used to worship the Lord when he was out in the fields. But here he has this experience with Samuel being anointed with oil and coming away with the Spirit upon him, empowering him in, in a new way. If we jump now to the, the New Testament, there again we find the Holy Spirit very active. 
It is the Holy Spirit who who causes the conception to take place in Mary. When uh, the angels speak to the Virgin Mary, she says, well, how's this all going to happen? Me having a son. And she's told the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So it is the Holy Spirit, God's agency, who, who brings about Mary's pregnancy. Of course, right throughout the, the Old Testament, the, the Holy Spirit had inspired the prophets to, to speak and to prophesy. And at the time of the birth of Jesus, there was a, a prophet named Simeon. He lived in the temple. We read this story in, in Luke 4, and we're told he was, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for God to come and comfort Israel and, and, and free them and, and console them and bring about the kingdom. So this was a man, Simeon, a prophet, waiting, waiting, waiting on God for, for years, possibly decades. And we're told the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is amazing. He's not part of the, the New Testament yet as a uh, people of God, as it were. Jesus hasn't uh, had a ministry, died on the cross yet. There's no Pentecost, but we read here in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been re revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And verse 27 says that Simeon, moved by the Holy Spirit, went into the temple court. So again, this, this passage here in Acts chapter 2, it tells us a lot about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here's a man filled with the Spirit, being moved by the Spirit, who hears the Spirit's voice. Now, when we move into the ministry of Jesus, we see that at the baptism of Jesus, Luke chapter 3, we read that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. And there's this voice from heaven saying, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. So once again, even though Jesus had been conceived through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, even though the Holy Spirit had clearly been active in his life, giving him wisdom, enabling him as a 12-year-old to be able to interact and, and, and amaze the teachers of the Lord, Jesus was, was, had a relationship with the Holy Spirit. But here at his baptism, Something else happens to Jesus, and there's a visible sign of the Spirit coming and resting upon Jesus. And this is Jesus being prepared now for his ministry. And the result of that is Jesus now starts to be led by the Spirit. And in Luke chapter 4, we read that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert where he was tempted for 40 days 
by the devil. So take note of these phrases. Straight after Jesus' baptism, he's described as being full of the Holy Spirit. It's a very interesting description of Jesus. For example, were there times where Jesus wouldn't have been described as being full of the Holy Spirit in in his 30 years up till this point? Because now, for the first time, that's a description that's used of Jesus. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. We know, too, from the New Testament, particularly from Luke's Gospel, that the source of power for Jesus' ministry was the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus in becoming a a human being. (coughs) He emptied himself. He, He laid aside his majesty, his power. Otherwise, no one would have been able to look at Jesus and live. Jesus humbled himself and he, he, he laid aside his majesty. And so when Jesus did miracles, when Jesus taught and did great things, it was in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's very encouraging for us. And when Jesus preached his first recorded sermon, it's in Luke chapter 4. He goes to the the synagogue in Nazareth. This is the place that he'd been brought up. And he takes the scroll, the scroll of Isaiah, and he he unravels the scroll and finds the place that he wants. And he reads these words, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. So this is the the Bible verse, as it were, for Jesus' first official sermon. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he ends by saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. As I was saying earlier, Jesus laid aside his, his divine powers, as it were. And it is difficult to understand the the nature of the incarnation. But Jesus laid aside his divine powers. And so when he did miracles on earth, it was in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Luke 5 verse 17, we read these verses that on one occasion, well, it doesn't say on one occasion, but it tells us that on on this occasion, the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. And this verse is also interesting in what it hints at. Were there times when the power of the Lord was not present in this way? And that would be the natural understanding of this Bible verse. We're told specifically that on this occasion, in this place, the power of the Lord was present for him to be able to heal the sick. So Jesus did miracles, healed the sick on occasion because the power of the Lord was present. There was a, an anointing of the Holy Spirit. We also know that the Holy Spirit was involved in the production of the Bible. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 and says that all scripture is God-breathed. 
The word is God-spirited. It is the breath of God or the spirit of God that has resulted in Scripture coming into being. Peter also tells us in 2 Peter 1 that we must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by a prophet's own interpretation. He says prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is a reference to, to prophecy in the Old Testament and also in moving into the New Testament for people like Simeon. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's why we have the scriptures today. These are the, the words inspired by the Spirit of God. So I hope these thoughts give you an understanding of what the Holy Spirit did during Old Testament times. I want to speak now about the nature and personality of the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the, the Trinity. We often speak about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are many references to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament where he is referred to interchangeably with God. For example, we know that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple? So sometimes in a sentence in the Bible, the Holy Spirit and God is referred to interchangeably. The same thing we see in, in Acts chapter 5, where it's the situation where Ananias and Sapphira and Peter says, You've, You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. And so we find these places in the New Testament where God and the term the Holy Spirit are used interchangeably. We also know that the Holy Spirit has all of the attributes of God. The Holy Spirit is omniscient. In other words, he, he knows everything. And the scripture for that would be 1 Corinthians 2, where Paul writes, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit is omniscient. He even knows the thoughts of God. This is not a machine that we're talking about or a thing. This is a person who is eternal. Often the, the adjective eternal is used before the word spirit. We know the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. Often the Holy Spirit's name is, is used in association with the Trinity. In Matthew chapter 28, we have the Great Commission. Jesus says, go and baptize people in the name, singular, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's also a benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians 13, 
where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are referred to together, where Paul writes, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Holy Spirit is, is a person, not a, not a force. Always in Scripture, the personal pronoun and the male singular personal pronoun is used to speak of the Spirit. The verse I've chosen to illustrate this is, is John chapter 16. It's, it's in the notes from verse 13. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. So the Holy Spirit is, is a person and he has all the, the characteristics of personhood. He has intelligence, will, and emotions. He can be lied to, Acts 5. He speaks, Acts chapter 8, and many other references. We're told not to grieve or, or offend the Holy Spirit. I want to move now to a very important section, and that is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives today. It's very important that we have a balanced view of what the Holy Spirit does in someone's life. And so I want to really try and cover all of what the Holy Spirit does in a Christian's life. And the first thing is that he imparts life to us. It is the Holy Spirit who causes a person to be born again. And we covered this in detail in, in session two of the Rooted course. Jesus says, unless you're born of the Spirit, you won't see the kingdom of God. And it is the Holy Spirit that makes a person spiritually alive. It is, it's the Holy Spirit who, who comes into our hearts and gives us a, a new heart. A, a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. The second thing that the Holy Spirit does in a Christian's life is he is our counselor. He is our constant companion, our friend, our helper in living the Christian life. This is what Jesus talks about in, in John chapter 14. There he he's preparing his disciples for his crucifixion. We're, we're getting into the teaching, Jesus' final teaching before his crucifixion. And he says to the disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The context here is that Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away. He's saying, I have been your counselor, disciples. I've been the one that's taught you about God, that's helped you to grow in your relationship with God. But I'm going away now, says Jesus. But I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to send you another counselor. In other words, it's going to be like still having me with you, but just different. 
the spirit of truth. Verse 17b, you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Verse 26, the counsel of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Where Jesus uses this word counselor, it is the Greek word paraclete. And it, it's made up of the Greek root words para, which means alongside, and kleo, which means to call out, calling out. And so this is also where we get our word advocate from. He is the one who is alongside. He is the para the one who, who calls out to us, an advocate, an intercessor, our consoler, our comforter. These are all different ways in which the word paraclete is translated. The NIV primarily uses the word counselor. And that's who the Holy Spirit is in our lives. That's part of what he does. He, he helps us to live the Christian life. He's always with us, always alongside us, guiding us, helping us, showing us, assisting us. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is, is our teacher. That's also what John says here in verse 14. He says, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, he will teach you all things. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding in the Christian life. The fourth thing the Holy Spirit does in a Christian's life is convict us of sin and not just we who are Christians. In John 16, there's this interesting description of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, unless I go away, the counselor will not come. And verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and of righteousness and judgment. So we're told another of the things the Holy Spirit does is convict people of their sins. And not just for Christians. But he's going to be at work in the world bringing conviction about sin. And about God's righteous standards and about the coming judgment. So we must remember that it is the Holy Spirit that that teaches us as Christians and that also convicts people of their sin and it causes them, we hope, to ultimately become Christians. But the Holy Spirit doesn't just convict us of sin. He gives us the power to overcome sin. And this is a, a wonderful truth and it's one of the signs that the Holy Spirit is alive and well in our lives. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to overcome sin. And this is made so evident to us in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says there are two ways to live. You can live according to your sinful nature. And if you do that, the result will be death. Or you can live by the Spirit. We can be controlled not by the sinful nature, verse 9 of Romans 8, but by the Spirit. 
And then he makes it crystal clear in verse 13. It is, if we live according to the sinful nature, we will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It's, it's fascinating to me that the Holy, it is by the Holy Spirit that we put to death the misdeeds of the body. And it's fascinating to me that Paul links now that that's what shows who's being led by the Spirit and those who are the sons of God. It's those who who are putting to death the misdeeds of the body. It's those that are growing in righteousness. That's the sign that the Spirit of God is at work in our lives. The sixth thing that the Holy Spirit does within us is give us assurance This is such a well-known verse, Romans 8, verse 15 to 16. We didn't receive a spirit that makes us fearful or a slave to fear, but we received the spirit of sonship that enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit, capital S, himself testifies with our spirit, small s, that we are God's children. So this is something very important the Holy Spirit does in a Christian's life. We have a spirit, our human spirit. And when you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and has a conversation with our spirit. And one of the things the Holy Spirit constantly says to a true believer is, you really are God's child. You really are part of God's family. You can cry out to God, Abba, Father. So the Holy Spirit teaches us. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes us to be born again. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we overcome sin. And it is through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we have the assurance within that we are God's children, that we are saved. It's through the Holy Spirit that we hear that voice speaking to our spirit. You're God's child. You can cry out, Abba, Father. Another thing that the Holy Spirit does in a Christian's life is to develop our character, to develop our character. Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. He says, so I say, live by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature, they're in conflict with each other. So that you do not do what you want. And here's the but. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Holy Spirit. You're not under law. Verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Debauchery. Idolatry. Witchcraft. Hatred. Discord. Jealousy. 
fits of rage, selfish ambition, envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. These are the things that, that come naturally from our sinful nature. But Paul tells us, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, the produce of the Spirit, what the Spirit produces in a Christian looks very different. It is things like love for others, joy in our hearts, peace in our minds, patience with people, kindness, moral goodness in our living, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that the Holy Spirit produces in a person where he has reign, where he has influence, where he is present. So the Holy Spirit shapes and develops our character. Verse 24 of Galatians 5, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit also empowers us to, to witness and to serve. Remember, one of Jesus' first promises about the Holy Spirit. He said, when I, when I go, go to Jerusalem and, and wait there for the gift that I've spoken about. John baptized with water. John the Baptist. But in a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's the promise that Jesus gave his disciples. John baptized with water. John pushed people into water. But you're going to be immersed, baptized, pushed into the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. When Jesus is giving that promise, they say, well, when's that going to be? When's it going to happen? Jesus said, it's not for you to, to know or to worry about the dates. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. That is the gifting of the Holy Spirit. That's what the gifting of the Holy Spirit is for. It's so that we as Christians can have power to live the Christian life. And most importantly, we will have the power to be His witnesses. A spirit-filled Christian is not someone who hides away their faith. A person who is filled with the Spirit has power to speak to those that don't know the Lord or believe in Him about the good news. We'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we will be His witnesses here and abroad. And of course that all happened on the day of Pentecost. Another thing that the Holy Spirit does is He gives gifts. And this is what we talk about using the phrase, the gifts of the Spirit. 
And straight away, we need to make sure we're understanding that phrase properly. These are the gifts of the Spirit. These are the things that the Spirit gives to people. They're His gifts, not ours. 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are the two passages in the New Testament that talk in detail about some of the Spirit's gifts. And 1 Corinthians 12 begins with these words, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. And then Paul goes on to say, look there, to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. In other words, to every Christian, the, the Spirit can be seen at work in their life. And, and this is the Holy Spirit's work, and it happens for the good of, of everybody. And then he goes on to describe the different things the Holy Spirit may give through any particular Christian for the common good. He may give wisdom. He may give knowledge, and you can follow along in the passage, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. He may give faith, a surge of faith to be able to trust God in a situation. He may give gifts of healing, the ability to do something miraculous, to prophesy, to distinguish between, yes, that's the Holy Spirit, or that's a... A, a false spirit, the ability to, to pray and to speak in, in tongues, the ability to be able to interpret what a tongue that someone speaks in means. These are all gifts from the Spirit, things the Spirit does in us, gives to us to help us to, to live the Christian life. Verse 11 sums it up. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And He gives them to each one as He determines. The, the kinds of spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 14. They are not gifts that we have. The gift is the manifestation. Let me give you a very simple example. If someone is sitting next to me and they have a headache and they ask for prayer and, and I go across and I lay my hands on them and I pray for the Lord to heal them and the headache goes away. I want to ask you the question, who, has the, who received the gift of healing? Was it me, the, the channel of God's grace? Did I receive the gift of healing? No, I didn't. The gift of healing was the work of healing that the other person got in, for example, their headache instantly going away. The, the gift of the Spirit is the thing the Spirit gives. That's the gift. It's not something I possess. If God gives a a word of wisdom. It is that way of tackling a problem from, from God. That's the gift. It's not the getting of the gift that is the gifting. It is the thing itself which is the Spirit's gift, the manifestation of the Spirit in 
our lives. But I'd need to do a whole teaching on the gifts of the Spirit because there are different categories of gifts. They're vocational gifts. These are gifts that God gives to His church. They're mentioned in Ephesians 4. Uh, they're motivational gifts. These are mentioned in Romans chapter 12 and in other places. And then there are these manifestation gifts of the Spirit. Other gifts of the Spirit would also be martyrdom and celibacy. Those are also charismata, gifts that the Spirit gives. So there are many kinds of spiritual gifts. I want us to enter now into our final session, part of today's session, and that is responding to the Holy Spirit. How are we to respond to the Holy Spirit? We've looked at what the Holy Spirit does in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in a non-Christian's life and in a Christian's life. And the Holy Spirit is very active and is very active today. So let's consider what are ways, how are we to respond to the Holy Spirit. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 5. There we read, don't get drunk. Instead, let God's Spirit move you. That's the, the summarized message. We often talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's read Ephesians 5. There Paul says, be careful how you live. Don't be unwise. Make the most of every opportunity and understand what the Lord's will is. Verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Why does Paul link don't get drunk on wine with instead be filled with the Spirit? I think he's... He, his, his implication is just as alcohol influences a, personal, a person's personality and makes them say and do things they might later regret, he's saying don't let that happen to you. Rather let God's Spirit influence your personality and make you say and do things. Don't be drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to describe what that might look like. Singing and making music in your heart to the Lord and being submissive to others. It's important to recognize also in the Greek language that the instruction be filled with the Spirit is given in the present and in the continuous tense. In other words, it's an instruction to us that we are to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is not a once-off event being filled with the Spirit. We're to go on being filled with the Spirit. So that's one way, one picture of responding to the Spirit. Here's another, and I've already alluded to it minutes ago. In Acts 1, Jesus says, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul looks back and says, For we were all baptized 
by or in one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Over the years, Christians have got themselves very worked up about the meaning of the term baptism in the spirit. If we were Greek speakers, we wouldn't have all the the complications we have doing theology in English. What does it mean? John immersed people in water, but Jesus is going to immerse people in the Holy Spirit. And we've all been given one spirit to drink. It's just a metaphor. It is a picture of of our relationship with the Holy Spirit. We, We become encompassed by the Spirit. It's an all-encompassing experience. We're submerged in the Spirit of God. Just like a person being baptized is covered with water. So with Jesus, we're going to be covered with the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And this really follows on very neatly from my third picture of how we respond to the Holy Spirit. And I've entitled it, Swim in the River of God. Let yourself go with the flow. And I'm getting this from Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47 is is a very well-known visionary encounter that Ezekiel has. He sees in his vision water coming out from under the, the temple flowing in an easterly direction. And we read the water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. And in this vision, Ezekiel is is taken by an angel and they, they move down this river that is coming from the temple. It starts as a little trickle out of the temple gate. And we're told that the water is ankle deep. But then they walk off another thousand cubits, and now they find that the water is knee-deep. And then they go another thousand cubits, and now the water is up to waist height. And then they go another thousand, and it's now a raging river. And Ezekiel says, I could not cross it. Verse 5 of Ezekiel 47. The water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. A river no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, do you see this? And he led me back to the bank of the river. And the river is that which is bringing life. It's, it's the river that, that flows and even makes salt water fresh. It's a picture of the life of God flowing out of the temple and into the world. It starts off as a trickle at the temple's door. But before you know it, this life of God that is bringing life wherever it goes is becoming a a raging river that you cannot cross. 
all you can do is not be ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep, but to throw yourself in this river and to let it carry you. And as it carries you, you'll experience the life of God. This, I believe, is what Ezekiel's vision is, is all about. It's really a, a look ahead at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. There's one other passage we just have to look at when it comes to responding to the Holy Spirit. And that's the passage, John chapter 7. And I've given it the heading, a drink that becomes a flowing stream. And we read this. Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem, and everybody is celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a tabernacle is another word for a tent, and for 40 years the people lived in, in tents in the desert, and the Feast of Tabernacles celebrates that. And Jesus went to the festivities at the temple. And in John chapter 7, for, chapter 37, Sorry, John 7, verse 37. Please follow along in your Bible. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Do you see the connection between what's going on here and Ezekiel 47? Well, the people at the feast certainly did see the connection to Ezekiel chapter 47, the vision I described moments ago. <coughs> In fact, on the last and greatest day of the feast, they would allude to Ezekiel 47 and the priests would take water and they would pour it out on the ground as a, as a symbol of that little trickle of water beginning. It was a symbolic action. And we're told, and I can, I can picture this happening, just as the priests are pouring out that water as part of the drama of this festival. Jesus, who's sitting in the crowd, suddenly shouts and gets everybody's attention. And he says, hey, if anyone is thirsty, you need to come to me to drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. So Jesus is, is, he's not hijacking the festival. He's, he's showing its true meaning. He's, he's taking what's going on in the drama of the festival and he's calling everybody's attention to him and saying, if you want this river of life that Ezekiel prophesied about, if you want this river to flow out of you, you need to come to me and drink. And it's going to become a stream flowing from without, from within you. Verse 39, by this he meant the Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Friends, if we want to experience the Spirit of God in our lives, we need to come to Jesus and drink, to allow him to to fill us. It's like having a spring of living water welling up within you. That's John chapter 4. That's what Jesus said to the the woman at, at Jacob's well, the Samaritan woman. He said, I've got water that if you have my water, you'll never thirst again. Because the water I give will become in you a a." spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is such a great way to understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When you're filled, when you become a Christian, you receive a spring of living water. And being filled with the Spirit is when you allow that spring of water to flow in your life, to flow through you, to fill you, and to flow out into the world to bring the life of God everywhere. Interestingly enough, Jacob's well isn't just a well that if you you dig deep enough and you hit the water table, that's not the kind of well that Jacob's well is. Jacob's well actually is a spring underneath it. You're not hitting the water table. There's a spring at the bottom of that well. And so when Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, I have water that will become in you a well springing up to eternal life. That's what he's talking about. So as Christians, we have this, the, the source of this water within us. There are many different metaphors for describing the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. Here are some other metaphors. We're to keep in step with the Spirit. We're to be led by the Spirit. We're to be anointed. As we close today, I want to just mention that it is possible for us as Christians to reject the Holy Spirit and what He wants to do in our lives. It's possible for people to resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen, just before he was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, says to the Pharisees, you stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. People can resist what the Spirit is wanting to do in their lives. Secondly, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can cause Him grief. In Ephesians 4 and verse 30, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That last phrase clearly indicates these are Christians being spoken about. Even as a Christian, you can grieve the Holy Spirit by the choices you make, the way you live your life, and the decisions that you live out. Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed. We can quench the Holy Spirit. Paul mentions that in 1 Thessalonians 5. We're told In verse 19, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Sometimes by our actions, we can 
we can thwart the work of the Holy Spirit. We can, we can put out the Spirit's fire by our sinfulness and by our wrong motivations. We can quench the work of the Spirit and we can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I want to close with an awesome promise. God really wants to give us His Spirit. Of course He does. Jesus said in verse Luke 11, verse 9, Ask and it will be given to you. This is also continuous asking. Seek and you will find. Knock, go on knocking and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks, receives. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Which if he asks for an egg, would the father give a scorpion? If we, though we are evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. This is a gift that the Father has for you, for me. Let me pray with you as we wrap up. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Spirit. And today we want to open our hearts and our lives to the, the full work of your Spirit. Do with us whatever you wish. Fill us, make us whole, help us to overcome sin. Manifest your gifts in and through us. And may the river of life flow in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.